Okay, welcome, my fellow bozos out there. We are back for another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. Uh, this week, we are excited to invite Sarah Robotham. 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 Very, very yeah, I didn't butcher it. Into the Bozo Zone. Um, we're grateful. And Sarah is also part of our Bozo Roundtable, yeah. which we uh, had actually our first episode broadcast last week. And I hope all of you had a chance to listen to that. If not, please go back and, and do some great discussions on um, authenticity and vulnerability and listening and. Uh, well, we of course covered the Love Loud. Yeah, that's festival yes, very yes. well. <laughs> yep, got that one covered. Done. But the people that have listened to it, by the way, that one of the things that they uh, I've heard back from people is um, how they, they thought how important it was to hear sort of a, a discussion about vulnerability and listening and um, and that that you know being authentic with ourselves and our ability to show up for other people. Yeah, um, it was cool how the discussion went that way. It yeah. wasn't even totally part of the plan, but it just, it really, I mean, I think it's something, because it is vulnerable, you don't talk about it that much. That's, and that's right. <laughs> kind of the whole point. So it was, it was kind of neat to open up about it. I thought the listening part was definitely yeah. something that is rarely discussed. And yeah, yeah, listen if you haven't. It, it was a good, it was a good podcast, roundtable, which we'll be continuing to do. Yeah, we'll, we're going to do one here in about uh, four weeks. Four weeks from from today, I believe. So um, look forward to that. And um, yeah, the, the, something you just said there, I, I thought was kind of funny because it wasn't part of the plan. But don't, <laughs> don't get too confused. We don't really have that much of a plan. <laughs> there wasn't really a plan to begin with. That was just. I, I asked people to there. bring topics, but you know. <laughs> we yeah, yeah we failed a little bit at that, but it ended up working out. All right, <laughs> it's okay. But today is uh, time we we get to know you more. Um, though that was wonderful to, to have you have last week, but this is your, your opportunity to tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here. Um, and of course, what, what makes you makes just you. another bozo on the bus? Oh, so many things. <laughs> where do I begin? Well, yeah, <laughs> where, where, wherever you like, where would you like to begin to tell us about your, your life? Um, let's see. I kind of what brought me to... I guess that got me here, meaning to get to know you, Paul. Uh, December 2016, after a bout that I can discuss a little bit more later, I decided to get into treatment for alcohol. Uh, that's when I met Paul. He did my, um, what's it called? The, Your assessment? My assessment. Oh, my gosh. Yep. That's right. No, <laughs> I do remember that. Yep, so over your year and a half ago, uh, did my assessment and yeah, long story short to kind of just get to the point of how I got here. I, I did residential treatment at Wasatch recovery in January of 2017 for 30 days. Uh, again for alcohol, I did day treatment after that. IOP kind of did the whole process. Um, and have been coming around there's a couple things in between there, but basically I've been coming to Wasatch ever since to uh, aftercare there and stayed involved with, with you know, different connections there and with Paul. So So did you grow up in Salt Lake? Is I did. Is your family from here? 
so my parents are originally from Minnesota, and mm-hmm. my older siblings were both born there. They moved here just a couple of years before they I was born, before they decided to have me. So I was born and raised in Utah. Are you the youngest? I am the youngest, yep. Uh, brother is seven years older, sister is nine years older, so the youngest by quite a bit. Um, so I was born and raised here. I grew up uh, mostly right in Salt Lake. We, When I was younger, we lived in Sandy for a period of time and also Park City for about five years, mm-hmm. but moved down to Salt Lake when I was eight or nine, so pretty much grew up, grew up around here. I... We spent a lot of time in Minnesota. My mom started working for Delta as a flight attendant when I was three. So we had flight benefits pretty much my whole growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, she retired from that when I was, oh, I want to say 14, 15, probably. So a lot of times I would spend just my summers in Minnesota. Oh, I'd spend really? like a month at a time, yeah. Um, all of our extended family was and is still there. Okay. So... Uh, we, I go yearly still, um, but that was definitely a big part of my childhood, even though I was born and raised here, spending a lot of time there. So, cool. Yeah. Cool. What what uh, what what sort of stands out to you about the 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 time you spent in Minnesota, especially uh, as a kid? I remember as a kid always wanting to move there. <laughs> I oh really? Yeah, I didn't get. I had more of an appreciation for Minnesota, I think, as a child than I did for Salt Lake. And maybe that's just because it was always vacation time there. It was always, you know, a lot of time spend time in the summer or over holidays. Uh, my mom's parents owned a house on the lake and my aunt did too. So I spent a lot of time, you know, on the water, just lake right in the backyard, uh, boating, swimming and it's just it's some of the best memories I have of my childhood sure. is yeah. is spending time there uh, with grandparents and aunts and uncles and uh, it it really is a great state a really special place but as I got older I grew to appreciate and love Salt Lake a lot more <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think I I would be interested in moving there now but that I remember that as a child my parents kind of threw around the idea here and there when I was younger of moving back there Mm -hmm. at at times. And I think all of us were usually for it. My siblings and I, uh, it took us till we were a little bit older to, my parents had a a little bit of a hard time acclimating here. To to Um, the Utah culture? Just to Utah, yeah. Yeah. It was the 80s and uh, things have progressed a lot in in terms of diversity here. Uh, At the time, they... They had a hard time adjusting a little bit to the culture and religious mm-hmm. um, dynamic here, just having never been around it. I mean, they came here for my dad's job, and they sure. knew nothing about Utah, knew no one here. So uh, Fascinating. Yeah. So it took, I mean, years. And they, they feel the same way now. They absolutely love it. They would never, you know, for my knowledge, want to move sure. from Salt Lake. But it, I would say it took maybe 10 to 15 years for them to really find their place here kind of for all of us, hmm. even though it was always my place. It, yeah. What, what was it like growing up at home? What, tell, tell me about your relationship with your siblings. How was that? It was good. Uh, having them be so much older at times, it felt almost like I was an only child just because they were always out of the house. They were always, I mean, they babysat me sometimes. They were they were just a lot older, so 
uh, in elementary, for instance, I they were in high school and college, so it sometimes felt a little bit more like being an only child. My sister and I butted heads a little bit in my youth. I was just kind of the annoying younger sister. She was nine years older than me, so she definitely had that going on. My brother and I have been close uh, ever since the day I was born. He just has always been kind of a protector. I remember you saying he yeah. took on that role. Yeah, he definitely took on the role of being um, kind of, you know, watching out for me and, you know, even things with my sister and I, who her and I are incredibly close now, you know, mm-hmm. as I have, as soon as I got into adulthood and maybe even a little bit before we, we developed a really great connection and are, are close friends now, but in the younger years, I remember having a lot of battles with her and my brother kind of trying to be somewhat the peacemaker, but a little bit more just kind of my protector. Yeah. Um, and so overall, I had a good dynamic with my siblings. I I spent quite a bit of time doing my own thing as a kid, just because they were a lot older. And my mm-hmm. mom, again, she she flew for you know she was a flight attendant, so she was gone a lot. Mm-hmm. So my dad and I had a really strong, strong bond and connection from mm-hmm. an early age. Okay. Since she started flying when I was three. Uh, they looked at daycares for me and decided against it. And my dad actually took me to work with him every day. Seriously? Yeah, from the time I was three until I was in school. And then even when I was in school, he would, and at the time I, we were living in Park City, he was working in Salt Lake. So he would drop me off at school, you know, once I started kindergarten, first grade, mm-hmm. drive back to Park City to pick me up, take me back to work with him in Salt Lake. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, anytime my mom was was, was gone, which was frequently. That's a commitment. <laughs> Yeah, big commitment, but it's, you know, I have to say, I know my mom has had struggles with that feeling like, you know, she was there at that age for my Mm -hmm. brother and sister and not for me, but I wouldn't change anything because it always felt really special when I had that time with her. I never really felt like she missed out on anything, Mm -hmm. but yet it was a great time for me to develop a stronger bond with my dad that I, Mm -hmm. I think I maybe got the privilege of doing more so than my siblings because of that, you know, kind of forced time together. And, and so that's actually, I'm really grateful for that part of my, of my childhood, having all that time with him in the important years of development. Did you, the, the dynamic with you and your, and your sister, even though when you were younger, it was, it was difficult, uh, maybe some some rivalry, not 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 due to age, more or less, but being the youngest, you know, and her being being the oldest. A lot of times, the attention gets diverted from parents so much I'm sure you know, to did. take care of a younger child, and yep. and that can easily create some resentments. Yep. Um, you know, uh, any any torturing episodes that. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't need to go into yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm like no, no yeah. my bro. As much as my brother is my protector, they both they tended to gang up gang up on me quite a bit. Um, <laughs> you I remember were out, the odd man out is what yeah, you say. a couple instances that are pretty funny stories that we tell to this day. Uh, in Minnesota, it's December. I mean, just Minnesota, well below zero temperatures. Yeah, Minnesota in December. Yeah, yeah, snow up to your shoulders, and it's Christmas. We're at my grandparents' house. I'm probably maybe six years old or so. And we played a game where 
you know, they tied me up. My hands were tied. My feet were tied. I'm playing along because I always thought you that were if they want, yeah, I was hogtied <laughs> literally. And I was always up for it. I was pretty naive thinking if they want to hang out with me, then I'm mm-hmm. kind of good to do whatever. Next thing I know, they, my brother's carrying me outside into the freezing cold temps and my sister's yelling and they think it's hilarious that they're going to tease my dad and pretend to drop me in the snow outside while I'm tied up. So my brother <laughs> tells my sister, go get dad, go get dad. He has to see this. Uh-huh. And my brother holds me over the snow while my dad's in his shorts and trying to get shoes on and saying, John, don't you dare. And the next <laughs> thing I know, he just boop, drops me and I just sink to the bottom of this huge snow mound, get covered. <laughs> and my brother form ta- or my dad form tackled my brother into the snow before getting me out. But uh, things like that. They teased me a lot, a lot of games like that, but nothing too traumatizing. <laughs> When I was older, high school, early college, my sister and I did have a couple episodes that were a little bit more emotional, mm-hmm. and and that was that was difficult. But luckily, we were able to to get past that. But we did have some some pretty strong emotional yeah um, arguments. I would say when I was a little bit older. So what was what was what was school like? You went to. Um... Um, where did you go, where did you go to junior high and high school here? I went to Churchill Junior High up in Olympus Cove okay, area. Right, right. Yep, and then Skyline High School. In Skyline. So yep, holiday area where my parents still live. So it was it was good. I I actually had a really pretty great experience. I would say in terms of junior high and high school that those can be hard years. I seventh grade was a very hard year for me. I went to an elementary that was divided to two different junior highs, and most of my friends went to the other one. Oh. And so going into seventh grade, my first year in junior high, was actually pretty lonely and trying to meet new friends, which is common for, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people that age. One of my good... Oh, yeah, that's a, those, those junior yeah, high years. Yeah, it's just, just, it was crazy. so, yeah, it was just... I remember it being one of my harder years, yeah. feeling at the time I didn't realize what it was, but I'm, I'm sure it was some depression. Uh, my mom was still flying at the time, and it was a time where maybe I didn't feel as comfortable opening up to my dad, you know, anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't have a lot of friends at school. It was hard for me. I was fairly shy. One of my good friends that did go to the same junior high started developing severe depression while we were in seventh grade. Uh, mm-hmm. having some, I mean, hospitalized type things. And that was kind of... Was this eye- your it first was, experience? With yeah, it was very on. eye-opening to me to see. Okay. And that was a bit traumatizing stuff. You know, with her family, they, their culture, they tried to do things with medicine doctor type things. And mm-hmm. then she'd be hospitalized and, um, you know, she started cutting herself. And that was stuff that was completely new to me and just... It was a very eye-opening time to to that part of my life of, you know, you're not totally a kid anymore, and there are struggles out here, people struggle, and and she was my closest friend at the time, so that was, it was kind of a lonely and sure. challenging year. Well, and it's, I think, you know, what, so you're in seventh grade, and you're what, 12, 13? 12, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, to understand that, I mean, just that it's early adolescence. Right. You know, um, identity is just developing and forming and, and friend, you know, learning really some of the intricacies of, 
um, you know, the social dynamic with friends, just really beginning to explore that. Yeah. And then having somebody close to you go through these kinds of experiences can, it can feel traumatic too. Yeah. um, And dramatic and traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, my oldest nephew is 12 right now. And just to think about, you know, him experiencing that stuff, you know, with a friend, I, I feel like he's too young to be, you know, going through those type things, you know, so looking back, it's, it's interesting, but, but it was all a good lesson from there. I, I did start to develop some friendships and actually a large majority of the friendships I started developing in junior high stuck and I'm still close with them today at Mm. 32 years old. And a lot of them live out of state. My best friend lives out of the country. She lives in England and uh, so once I did find my niche there, oh. I I really, my eighth and ninth grade years in junior high were a completely different experience. So you really so, began to build a social network. I did. Yep. Okay. And then we fed into the same high school. So, um, yeah, we, I, I definitely developed close friendships at the second and third year. And a lot of those have, have remained close friends to this day, which is really neat. Uh, high school, I... I tried to get, I was pretty involved in both junior high and high school. At the time, I think it was good for me because that, it did help, you know, the social networking Uh part, making friends. I did uh, the dance team in junior high in eighth and ninth grade. I was cheerleader in ninth grade, which is embarrassing a little and definitely not something. Why? Why I don't know. I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like. You were, you'd been dancing. I had been dancing. I know. Yeah. I danced since I was eight. So I guess it was fitting and, and it was a good time. It was, it was a neat way to. I'm not trying to rationalize it here. I know. I know. Yeah. It's just one of those things I look back and think. Yeah. I just look at the image. Think thinking of me as a cheerleader now is just, it's, it makes me giggle a little bit, but that's okay. And in high school, I kind of continued on. I did, our drill team my sophomore year of high school which is another a dance team basically uh-huh. yeah took my junior high year off and then my senior year i was actually the senior class president so i i was quite involved um <laughs> you're a little bit of an overachiever weren't well you? yeah that's i'm beginning to think that <laughs> uh and it is interesting looking back on some of those things that have i would say especially being um, a class officer like that my senior year of high school has kind of drug on and stayed with me mm-hmm. in ways that some are good and some aren't. Mm-hmm. It, it was just interesting that a one-year choice of, yeah, I think I'll run. That would be fun has kind of stayed with me throughout all these years. I have to do the high school reunions, of course, which is one thing. And that's that's fine. But even feeling like I remember when I started having some issues with alcohol and talking to my dad. Was this still high school? Nope. So this is this is recently. This is oh, right okay. before I went to treatment. And so about a year and a, a little over a year and a half ago, I'm 30 years old. And, you know, we're talking about I had was had been having some episodes of drinking. And as talking to my dad, he brought something up about you know, this isn't you, you're better than this, and something to the effect of you used to be a leader, you were even the senior class president, and you now are, you know, ah, whatever. A little, a little yeah, of yeah, class, yeah I think it was yeah. just, you know, it set this bar of kind of an expectation yeah. of me being 
right. you know, a leader and not a follower and being strong in my, I don't even know, just some type of an image to the people around me, including my parents, I think, that that I was apparently not holding up to, you know, at this later point in my life. and The standards and expectations so, yeah. that, that they had for you. Yeah, right, exactly. Right? And so yeah. as much as that was kind of just a, yeah, I think I'll do that for one year, mm-hmm. it, it's, it kind of has followed me. It's like it's like it's like no, it's like the of the ringing of the bell, right? And 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 it's it stuck out in your dad's mind and maybe your mom's too. Yeah, probably. But stuck out in their mind is seeing you in a certain way because of that year, and so then they yeah. use that as a template to to put put over everything. Exactly, which is not yeah. an uncommon dynamic. Not at all, happens, and right? and it's and it came. I understand it stemmed from the fact that they were very proud of me that right. I I had done that and that that was you know part of my life, but having it backfire a little bit later in life was when he said that I was like that was 12 years ago (laughs) but you know it was it was a hard time and I I'm sure that his image of me that day after going through some issues yeah was hard for him yeah and and I can see that and a couple of his thoughts were probably images of sometimes in my life that he's been the most you know maybe proud of me or you know. Well, that idea that we remember people, you know, I mean, we in, in a way, it's a form of euphoric recall, right? Yeah. This idea that we remember people in certain lights are just the good times and those kinds of things. So for them, so, so for at least for your dad, there's this seeing you through the lens of that that uh, successful high school senior class president. Yeah, such know, a go-getter, yeah, go-getter involved, outgoing, and, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you were you were firing all all cylinders, so to speak. Yeah, I definitely laid the premise for yeah. for some expectations later right. in life yeah. that I was not expecting. Upon yeah, I'll run for class <laughs> president. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what uh, I can do. Yeah, but I did our ten-year class reunion. That was actually really fun, and I knew it was. And this is part of my control factor of mm-hmm. I like to plan things. And so although it was a lot of effort and thinking, wow, I'm going to have to have this role the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Every time a reunion comes up, when it came time, I was I was happy because I had control over where we were doing it and what oh, we were doing. And, very interesting. And, yeah, I had it at most of the years before us. had had it at the school, in the courtyard. I had it at Snowbird. And, you know, it pulled people in that had moved out of state to come since it was more of a vacation destination. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I definitely gave myself a pat on the back for, <laughs> you know, at those times. Good job. Good job. You Good job. you did a, had a fun party. I mean, that's that was something. It will be interesting to see the next one when it's 20 or if I'm going to be feeling quite that. <laughs> Are you going to do it again? I, I don't know. I'm I supposed know. to, I'm but... Just, I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm feeling a little different about it than I did at our 10-year. A lot has changed since then. I'm, I'm not feeling as much the need to people please, which uh-huh. was kind of a part of it, which I didn't realize, but you know, planning something that everyone's going to love and that people will remember and people will feel the need to actually come in from out of state for and not just, you know, and... Not that I wouldn't still like to plan a good sure. a good party and you know I but looking back changed. over your life when do you think I mean do you uh, this is always a fascinating subject the idea of um, you know the people pleasing aspects to, uh, to yes. the people <laughs> that become people pleasers and, and th- there's usually a time where we start to notice it I mine started very early when I, I became a people pleaser I'm wondering if you notice 
when well, yours did? I mean, do you that's a good it? question. Do you, do you remember it? Because um, some of that dynamic would be there if you think about the relationship um, with your your sister and then the one with your dad. You know, who was probably talked about being a cheerleader. He was probably one of your biggest cheerleaders. I mean, he definitely really. You spent a lot of time with him. You yep. were involved um, in his daily life for a long time. Yep. So, yeah, I I also think that the people pleasing started pretty early on in life. Mm-hmm. At this moment, I can't pinpoint the exact. That's definitely when it happened. But well, it's also norm- normal for the younger, the youngest, the youngest the one. Yeah, that dynamic of. You know, kind of, they talk about being kind of the joker and the the clown sometimes. Right. Yeah. Know. And I know that it was thinking with my sister and I. My sister was definitely the harder one for my parents. Mm-hmm. She rebelled more. You know, was kind of one against them. I saw them have a lot of talks with her, a lot of lectures. Mm-hmm. So early on. And being so much younger than her, that kind of paved the way for me not wanting to do that. Uh-huh. So I think part of that came to people pleasing because I don't want that relationship with my parents. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to go through what she's going through with them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that was her junior high and high school years. And so that was when I was in elementary school and impressionable. Mm-hmm. So I know that started probably a part of wanting to at least please my parents, making sure that I didn't put anything on them that would hurt them or be sure. hard for them. Right. And right. and the dynamic with my brother probably played a part a bit as well because he was my, you know, my protector, mm-hmm. one of my best friends. I always felt that I didn't have judgment from him. Mm-hmm. So I put him on a pedestal at a very young age, him and my dad, I would say, but with my brother, it, I mean, it lasted for a long, long time until recently, probably, of having him on the pedestal and wanting to, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's necessarily play a role, but be a person that was worthy of that. Right. You know, love worthy from of his him protection. and worthy protection. Of his support. Exactly. Yes. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to, you know, shake the boat on that at all. I, I wanted to be, because I think in a way, you know, he had me on the pedestal too. You know, he looked at me as his younger sister who could kind of do no wrong type thing. And I wanted to honor that, you know, I, I wanted to be that person. You, you, you were screwed for very young then. Right? Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> do no wrong. Yeah, right? and I think that that, I mean, I think all that happened quite young. Sure. I probably even, I mean, as, as soon as I can remember almost, right. wanting to to be that I can do no wrong for my right. parents because they dealt with stuff with my sister a little bit when she was in her youth for my brother, because I wanted to, you know, be worthy of what, yeah. where he put me in my life too. Sure. Yeah. And it's definitely just how our roles played out, you know, with our age difference and with, with our personalities. I don't think that either of us had the intention of, putting each other on pedestals and mm-hmm. for me having that reliance on him. But, but it definitely, it stuck at a young age and it stayed that way for many years as we ended up working together uh, in my, for almost 11 years for our family company. So um, it, it stuck all through those years as well. Well, and, you know, thinking about that too, from, 
the idea of wanting to show up and do right by these the, the people in our lives so that we find ourselves kind of getting molded into being comfortable as a people pleaser. And, mm-hmm. you know, we do it for us. I mean, ultimately, we, we say we're pleasing other people, but we do it because then we get recognition from others. Exactly. Right? And then that made me feel good knowing yeah. that I was looked at, on you know, on the pedestal or that I was worthy in their eyes of of being of being on their pedestal, of being yeah. protected and yeah. being kind of adored, you know, as the younger sibling and the daughter and, you know. Well, and, and then, you know, the, the image your dad held about you, too. I mean, and rightly so. I mean, yeah. you know, your your abilities to be able to show up and, you know, and be a leader. I mean, I love that whole, that whole scenario he puts out there, you know, because <laughs> what you were doing, you probably never thought about it in those terms, but you were just being, you know, a normal you know, high school senior in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you were excelling at a lot of different things, but you know, in, in his mind too, you know, right. I think now looking back after hearing that from him, it probably meant more to them, you know, than yeah. it did to me. For me, it was a fleeting decision. Yeah. And for them, they looked at it as she's continuing to make good choices right. and to excel in life and be a leader, which my family's always been really big on. Sure. Promoting, you know, leadership and being yourself, right. and uh, and then they begin a story about, well, then you can be a leader in other other areas in your life, and yeah, that's definitely supposed to carry on throughout. Right. And throughout. this leads into then, you know, your your family business, right? <laughs> right. Because you know the that step up in, into that role, and then all of a sudden take that role on in within a, a structure. Um, that, you know, that you, <laughs> I mean, th- this is one of those weird dynamics about family businesses and people that have, have, have them and as children that have worked in, in their family businesses and so on. There's always a different aspect to that than going to work for somebody else. There as really, well. really is. There's so these, so many multiple layers of, um, relational dynamics, especially different group dynamics that I just think are fascinating. And and so you, you besides just carrying on the expectations of what it's like to work for an employer, you add all these family dynamics on top of that as well. Right. You're you're carrying over the roles you already have in your family dynamic and mm-hmm. you're carrying those roles into your professional life, into your career. So you don't get to choose really what your role is going to be as an employee. You know, you some of it's already already there. It's right. Already Some put of it, it's it already is been already put in place. Right. Years, yeah. decades, decades possibly. of of these expectations, and so going into that for me, I went to the family business when I was uh, twenty years old. Is when I started working there. I was in college at the time and kind of started working there part time and ended up staying for eleven years. And for me, when I started, it was. Uh, definitely a comfort zone thing. It because it felt familiar. I didn't have yeah. to convince the employer that I was this or that. They already believed that about me, and they knew that about me. And had expectations. And had expectations <laughs> of it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, they already know. But really, it was, you know, the expectations were laid out without, sure. without any of us knowing, realizing. I think that 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 they were there. All those, all those, all those subtle multiple layers of dynamics that were already baked in. Exactly, and here the, I am it. working, you know, for my dad, uh-huh. who's already <clears throat> obviously been, you know, my father figure. So he's already been in that role of kind of boss, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, throughout my life. 
and my brother, he's, you know, above me in the company, so... You and know, your protector. Yeah. And my protector. So yeah. here I am. I go in feeling protected and comfortable mm-hmm. at this place of work that that feels just very easy. You yeah. know, it, it didn't feel like a lot of people when they start a new job of that, you know, intimidating or I need to prove something or, you know, I thought that at least, but I think it ends up at least for my... From my experience with a family business, you think you don't have to prove as much because they already know you, but you uh-huh. end up having to prove more. Yeah. You end up needing to be more on top of your game, I think, than working for someone else because they they do have those expectations. They know that you can do the very best. They be, they've seen you excel and be this person, right. and be this right. leader and hard worker and... So you better you better show up and do it, you know, because. Yeah. And I mean, so. there's a dynamic within this business too. Um, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but I, I do know that um, you know the, the the business was about people becoming their best, right? It I is, mean, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the you know trademarks of, of the company is it's they do uh, training, youth training, and mm-hmm. stuff, and. Uh, weightlifting and for different sports and team building exercises. And so Mm -hmm. it really, it is about that. And that got carried into my family life before I started working there that, you know, never giving up and, you know, kind of the whole, you know, you're, you're maybe not the fastest kid on the team, but you don't give up and you keep trying and you work right. hard and you know so that was instilled in me and you're part of a team there was you're definitely part of a team, instilled very in, much and, and yep. this is much deeper because it's also part of part of a family i had I, I know i talked about this a little bit last week but <clears throat> i talked about joe covey you know yeah, i had on yeah. and he, coming from the covey family and how you know in, in ways that growing up in a household would with uh you know Stephen Covey and, and his dad both being involved in all the research for that they were doing and and both of them being academics and uh, including his mom so you know all, all these different powerful influences around him they were experimenting with all that stuff so yeah i thought that was so yeah, interesting it is so fascinating yeah, it is. but you get that in the same way in a family business there's a whole another level to this where there's certain expectations built into it and when yeah. the family business is also built around performance and, and <laughs> yeah. And, and goal setting and leadership and all that. Exactly. Um, it it sort of gets that gets embedded on a whole new level too. It did, yeah. yeah. It just it extends that much further yeah. than any regular business, I think. Or yeah. yeah. So so I did work there for eleven years, and I stayed in that dynamic in that role with my dad, with my brother, yeah. for all those years that I worked there. And so when did you notice that beginning to change? When oh. I, well, I, I don't think I, I didn't mean for it to change and that kind of, that might sound weird, but there was no point at the beginning of the end, I guess, of mm-hmm. me working there that I thought that the dynamic wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. It was more that things were getting more serious. I, I had been there for a long time. I had built up within the company Worked hard to get where I was at. Uh-huh. Uh, I was the vice president of corporate operations at the time. My brother and I, the plan was for us to take over when my dad retired, which he was starting to slowly phase out at, uh-huh. at the time. And I'm about 30 years old at this point. So they 
I got some ownership in the company, um, a small percentage of ownership. And I guess that's when it started hitting me that, wow, I got, I got into this and just kind of went all in without thinking, is this right for me? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I guess I kind of questioned, is this where I want to be? Right. I just, I just went along with it all those other years. It, it worked. Like I said, it was comfortable. It's what I knew. I, I didn't really question it until it felt more binding by those expectations of my dad saying, you know, I, I know you can do this. I don't trust anyone but right, you to take right. over these certain parts of the company that I built. You know, it was his baby. And you, so, you, you didn't you know, have any experiences up to this point where you had differentiated from your family yet. Not though. at all. No, it, Which it was your, very immense. Your sister did. Yep. I mean, she struggled and, and, and was, you know, the, the pushing away conflict that happens. Yep. Which is, nor- you know, in most cases is normal and healthy. Yeah. It's not always. Right. But and I think for her it was. I mean, you know. Yeah, she got to a great place with my parents, and you know, yeah. and everything. It was a time just, of life, and that's yeah, a normal it was part normal. of growing up, right? Yep. The normal part of development is learning that differentiating piece. You kind of, you, you didn't do that. I skipped right over that <clears> piece, <throat> yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is normally what we do in late adolescence. Yeah, yeah, and I never really did that in late adolescence. Late adolescence, I even in junior high and high school when you're supposed to be. That's kind of the time where it's it's common for that to happen i i rarely rebelled or went against Mm. their well wishes uh that goes back to the people pleasing thing i they didn't want me to drink in high school that was a big thing to them and my brother and sister didn't drink while they were in high school um that was kind of always the if you don't drink in high school then kind of after that if you're responsible you know that's okay right you know but that was always the, you know, hope that they had for us. And I didn't drink my, until I think I drank once my junior year of high school with, and it was with my sister (laughs) and she was a lot older and I broke down and ended up telling my parents because I was so, you felt you had, so guilty, some some definite shame. I, I still remember that day, how I felt I was taking a bath and I was just, that feeling of shame, one of the first times maybe in my life of a real, you know, Deep. I went against something that they, that was very important to them mm-hmm. and I haven't told them, you know, I didn't, I didn't lie to them often. There wasn't a lot mm-hmm. to lie about because I, right. I was trying to please them. I was usually doing the right thing. And, and then I didn't, they were, well, and you would take, you, know, you would take an ownership of that agreement too, because shame definitely. comes, it may be initially someone else's agreement that we go against, but some, we have to have bought into it as well. Oh, exactly. Level. And yeah. I definitely did. I mean, yeah. that was, so I also felt that I was, I was not being true to myself. You know, I had friends that drink in high school and I was always, I was above that, you know, I was, again, I was a leader. I wasn't a follower. You know, I was choosing to not drink because, you know, I thought it was more and which it probably was that it was important to me. Uh And so when I went against that, I felt not only that I was going against their well wishes, but yeah, that I was going against my own morals, you know, values that I had decided upon. And, and so that, you know, and, and then of course it was the, you know, we're not mad, but disappointed talk. And the disappointment was, I mean, that just ate away at me for, for another it was poison. year or yep, yeah, year plus until, 
I finally had a small bout of rebellion the last half of my senior year of high school mm-hmm. where I was drinking with friends on the weekend, mm-hmm. but still, and they found out a couple times, still was not good, but um, it, they were disappointed still, and I, but that was, that was a s- short part of my rebellion was about mm-hmm. five, five or six months of my last half of my senior year of high school where but I was still, you know, I was involved and I was, you know, still getting straight A's, you know. And so it just kind of, although I think if it had been my sister, they probably would have been harder on her. I think for me, it was kind of that youngest child. Mm-hmm. Well, she made it this far. She's about to graduate, you know. She's probably hopefully being safe and, not, right. you know, type thing. And so they weren't happy about it, but I think they they maybe let it go a little bit more than... Isn't it so. interesting that your initial alcohol use was based around a... Um, the, through the development of shame? Oh, yeah. All this shame. Yeah. yeah. The, the, Very the, first this time. This really speaks a lot. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah, this, <laughs> and this is, you know, we, we know that there's a correlation. I mean, I say we, but yeah. there is this correlation between shame and addiction. Yes. Um, one feeds the other. Yeah. And one uh, promotes the other, um, meaning the, the more shame, the, the more reason it is to find a way to deal with that shame, even if it's just to soften it or quiet it. And um, substances obviously become an easy one. But you had developed a relationship to alcohol through or bonded with it, if you will, um, in an unhealthy way, not that you were abusing it, but that it you automatically went to a place of shame about it, yeah. which um, is not an, un- by the way, in, in Utah is not an uncommon dynamic. Right, that people yeah, have that, with that any, can be very common with, for with, people when they first yeah. start drinking in Utah, regardless yeah. of their age. Even. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I, I used to think this was kind of a funny dynamic, right? That people would have a problem with drinking alcohol um, because of the shame element um, that, that gets um, propagated over it often due to, you know, theological dogma. But then, you know, you know, getting addicted to a prescription drug, which is prescribed by a doctor was okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Isn't that just so warped? (laughs) And and the shame doesn't come till later for a lot of people. Um, Right, because they're not doing something that's against the, yeah. Something that they believe on some level they're not supposed to be doing. Right, right. And the, the truth is that, you know, that it wasn't necessarily that you were drinking, but that you had an agreement and an expectation from your parents yeah. that said you shouldn't do this. Exactly. And that's what cre- yeah. that's where the shame gets built up. Right. There was nothing about that I, you know, drove the night I drank my junior year. Or, you know, it, mm-hmm. it was there was it was just the internal. I had this agreement with them. I wasn't supposed to do this. I am wrong, you know, what's yeah. wrong with me? I've been doing so well and, you know, I just, you know, this, could really, this, this, this really fits into that model. Um, and we should probably bring this up on the next uh, round table. Um, <laughs> so I plan oh, that, right. that, that, that the, this idea, um, that, that we know when we bond with substances and it's done, um, more in a, in an unhealthy, shameful way, that that bonding is more powerful and there's much more of a psychological attachment to it. Definitely. And, and so, I mean, you know, I mean, if we take the rat, the rat park 
you know, um, research that, you know, that, that's done in isolation. Um, you know, the, the, well, the rat park was the, the contrary to the, having the, the rats use the cocaine water in isolation or if they were given a choice to have, you know, healthy uh, people to play with and toys and, you know, and <laughs> yeah. sex and food mm-hmm. and, you know, a nice happy right. playground to be in, yep. they, they, they wouldn't bond with the drugs. Right. But this, which I think is the same kind of, the same kind of thing. So th- this, this dynamic where people bond with the substances, but there is, must be some correlation of trauma associated with it that feeds shame, that we're doing something against ourselves or some moral code that we have agreed to. Yeah. Even if it's not true, necessarily it's true for us, there's still, um, a dynamic within within each of us that says if we're going against some type of value that we hold to be true or we hold to be important, then it feeds the shame. Definitely, yeah. And then That's the fa- exactly and then the shame happens, feeds yeah. the how we act out in those different addictions, yep. whether yep. it be drugs, alcohol, food, sex, work, right, exercise. all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah, that is that is an interesting. I had never thought about that really yeah. about that first time I drank, how much shame I felt. You know, I've always just kind of looked at it as yeah, I drank and I wasn't supposed to, and uh-huh. yeah, my parents were disappointed. No big deal, but it definitely was one of the first times of my life that shame was really real to me. You know that that feeling of well, thinking about it when with I mean in the other episodes, I mean if I mean I'm, it's this is all kind of going off in, in my brain right now. I'm mean, like fireworks <laughs> a little bit because. Um, I'm kind of interrupting you telling your story, which I no, we let's follow, but, move on to. But the this <laughs> is, but this is, you know, the, if if you go into when your experience with alcohol, with it, you know, later with when you were working, it fits right into the same. It does model. Yeah, it's the same mold. The same mold <laughs> yeah. of the of the disappointment mm-hmm. and the shame with the yep, parents. With the same and inc- the this same time it includes your brother and everything. Yep. The dynamic of of the one who is your protector. Right. So yeah. that just, I mean, just cuts even deeper, you know, yeah. because as, when I was younger, it was my, it was, I was going against my parents and I was going against myself, but I drank with my sister. So I wasn't going against her. She was once again, kind of always the, you know, kind of fun, rebellious one. And my brother, when he found out, didn't, he wasn't disappointed, which I kind of thought he would be, but instead was his first comment was, you drink with Amy and not with me. And you, <laughs> exactly. Was, yeah. I'm, you and I, we have a special yeah, we're bond. The clo- yeah. And right. he was, I'm pretty sure that's when he was living up in, up in Seattle, uh, f- finishing up college up there mm-hmm. when, or maybe he'd recently moved back. I can't remember, but mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I didn't have, it was my parents and it was internal, mm-hmm. but come, you know, 12 years later, I'm working at the family business. I start to develop more of a dependency on alcohol as I I started getting anxiety for the first time in my life. I didn't really know what it was. I thought I had all these physical physical problems. I right. went to every specialist. I had MRIs. I had I I called an ambulance on my way to the doctor once because I thought I it was my first panic attack and I thought mm-hmm. I was thought you're having a heart attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. We're gonna die. Yeah. yeah I. Yeah. I pulled over on the freeway and called them myself, and I was convinced when I was in the emergency room. They're like, do you have anxiety, a history of it? No, no. <laughs> Never <laughs> had anxiety in my life. And, you know, the doctor comes in, we did every test, and you are healthier than anyone else in this hospital mm-hmm. type thing. Right. And 
so that's that's kind of what started my drinking through my 20s socially sometimes overdoing it mm-hmm. you know but always kind of having the excuse of well every other person all my other friends are overdoing it too you know we're all at that <laughs> it's that time of our life right and, Da da da, whatever, and yeah, everyone's consuming mass quantities. Exactly, we're all starting on Thursday and going through Sunday, you know, and and then that turning into more. Okay, maybe I'm not drinking quite as hard, but I'm in this relationship, and him and I are drinking, you know, every night, but not a lot, you know. But we're not drinking binge drinking like we used to. Mm-hmm. Now we're just having a nightly glass of wine or two, mm-hmm. you know. So the first time that that changed was when I started getting anxiety because all of a sudden drinking wasn't, Oh, just cause it's fun or because we're having people over because mm-hmm. I want to enjoy this glass of wine. It started slowly creeping up as more of a dependency to, to soothe my anxiety, mm-hmm. to shut things off. I, I went through about two months, the summer of 2016 while I was still working for the family business spending a good probably a couple hours a day during the work day where I was having to walk, get out of the office and just take these long walks and listen to music and try and calm my anxiety because it had gotten so frequent and so intense. And I didn't really know where it was stemming from. There was times my dad had to drive me home from work because I was close to feeling like I was going to pass out because I was borderline having panic attacks and, um, so alcohol all of a sudden became a different friend to me. It became when I drink, it's the only thing right now. That, it was the only thing at the time that was calming me down. Yeah, you right. know, I get home after having that all day <clears throat> and I can have a drink or two. It wasn't even that I was, I wouldn't say totally overdoing it, drinking a huge excessive amount, but I looking back now, the reasoning behind my drinking had mm-hmm. completely changed at that point. Right. And that just built into months then of what eventually led to the winter of 2016 of me drinking at work at the family business two different times. And that kind of just to reel back into what you were saying mm-hmm. about the whole shame and the family dynamic. So going from a junior in high school drinking, going against my parents to all of a sudden drinking in the workplace, this place that, you know, my dad has, you know, spent years of his life building and I'm bringing this there, you know, it's one thing when I was drinking and talking to them because there was a time in the fall then before then that I had talked to my parents and told them, I think I have a problem. I, I'm now needing alcohol to cope with my anxiety. And at that time I was even on anxiety meds, but my doctor told me, oh, you can sell a couple drinks with them. And, <laughs> you know, it was. Well, well, you can if you're not drinking all the time. Exactly. Yeah. But a, a couple right. Drinks, but they yeah. weren't doing the trick quite enough. You know, mm-hmm. it was it did help with my panic attacks, but but it it didn't always help with. Mm-hmm. I still. And at that point, I was getting more dependent on it anyways. So it just seemed like an easier fix to have a couple drinks right. at night. And yeah. um and I did acknowledge that, though, after a few months of doing it and called my parents over and sat down with them and my husband at the time and told them, I think I have a problem. Mm-hmm. And my husband was 
can afford. And he's like, he, it took him a long time to be convinced that I did because mm-hmm. him and I drink together for eight years. Yeah. We drink at the same pace, you know, mm-hmm. and I think to him, it was so clear that you're just going through anxiety and you're not even drinking that much. Cause I, you know, I wasn't, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't no, I understand. binge yeah. drinking every night at that time. I wasn't quite drinking, you know, during the day yet and stuff. And, and so, but my parents, they knew there was something different and they could tell that there was, they weren't surprised, I guess, when I told them that I thought I had an issue. Mm-hmm. So then I went through a few months of, of trying to just stop and I'd go a couple of weeks and go, oh, I went two weeks without drinking. I don't have a problem. And then <laughs> <laughs> might as well just jump back on the bandwagon sure. and sure. that mixed with anxiety meds, you know, all of a sudden I'm embarrassing myself. We're having friends over for mm-hmm. A dinner, sitting around the, the fire pit at our house, and I'm, you know, passing out, like, after a few drinks, just, you know, between that and being on the, my anxiety meds, I, it just, it wasn't the same as it used to be. It right. was, it was a completely different dynamic. It had shifted into something that was, that was not healthy mm-hmm. or social anymore, and... Well, and you, up to this point, I mean didn't have any idea really what the underlying issue and problem was. Not at all. Because these are all symptoms of something that's completely, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got, you, nobody, nobody knew. No. I mean, no. And, and, and nobody directed you into an area to say, you know, these are all, I mean, nobody said these are all symptoms. No, no. I just was like, I either, I have a problem or I don't. And one of the hardest things for me to swallow was even having anxiety. I... I'm going to put this in kind of a weird way. I think it sounds kind of odd, but I didn't feel like I had the right <laughs> to have anxiety. I I didn't, you know, I had a pretty good, you know, I had a good life and I didn't have... Didn't have a lot of trauma. I didn't have, tra- you know, all this trauma yeah. that you hear about. And so when I started getting anxiety, I think one of the reasons I was so against believing it was anxiety was because, you know... I didn't earn that right to have problems, you know, my life was good enough that I needed to just be the best person I was. And I wasn't allowed to have problems, you know, because my life had been, I'd been, you know, gifted with a a good life and a good family and stuff. And yeah, no no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, so kind of jumping forward when I did December again of 2016 before I went into treatment for alcohol and had been battling for a few months of back and forth trying to quit on my own, mm-hmm. being successful very short term, mm-hmm. and then thinking and also convincing my parents and my husband at the time that oh I went a couple of weeks so I don't have a problem you know we went mm-hmm. we played that game back and forth for months you know of she has a problem she doesn't <laughs> when she drinks it's a mess but if does she you or know doesn't and she? yes and that was me questioning it I think they wanted to question it too to a certain extent um, until it got, it got bad enough where I was getting shame for every time I decided to stop drinking. And then if I started drinking again, mm-hmm. because also the anxiety, you know, it didn't go away. So I'm going to start drinking again because mm-hmm. I was helping it. But then I started at that point developing that shame and that was all internal. You know, I, I do have, there is something wrong with me because mm-hmm. I am drinking to cover this kind of when I started realizing why I was drinking and that I was using it as a cover and that I wasn't able to stop. That's kind of when the shame started and it perpetuated pretty quickly. And next thing you know, I am on a work trip and I'm having 
a disagreement with my husband on the phone about having kids, which had been another source of my anxiety. Do we have kids? Do we not have kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, battle between the two of us kind of for, for quite a while. And I, that was the first time I, I drank so much that I blacked out and I was in Texas and my parents and my husband couldn't get a hold of me. No, everyone was trying to call me. I wasn't answering because I was in my hotel room, just blacked out, mm-hmm. drunk. The guy I was on the work trip with couldn't, you know, get me to answer the door. So my husband ended up flying to Texas and having to bring me home, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, booked a last minute trip, flew down there. It was, that was the kind of the beginning of the, okay, shit's shit's bad you know there's there's more to this she you know that was my husband realizing okay yes she has a problem because at that point i wasn't hiding drinking from him Mm -hmm. he was aware and mostly okay if i was drinking in small amounts and so that was an eye-opener for him definitely an eye-opener for my family and for myself and it was the first time where that shame of the family and the workplace came into play because I was on a work trip. I was there to be, you know, my dad and brother trusted me to be there doing this convention and representing our company and being that, you know, leader and team player and kind of the face of our company that I was because I did travel and do conventions often. And that was, that was something they always felt very strongly and trusted me that I was doing a great job. And so this is, you know, the alcohol back and forth for months is one thing, but this is the first time that it it, it affects it, the family business. So affected. not just the parents, not just myself, not just right. my husband, but it it cut deeper because yeah. now I'm I'm putting our business mm-hmm. you know on the line. You know I'm I didn't show up you know of that one day of the convention and someone had to do it alone and you know it's uh, all of a sudden that responsibility that I should have you know had I. I just threw that away, you know, yeah. just, yeah. and so that, I mean, talking about it, just, I can feel that shame just yeah. like eating into my stomach as I talk <laughs> about it, because coming back from that trip was just, it was brutal. You know, the being with my husband who was rightly furious, also very worried, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. he flew down there, so he was worried, but then going back to face my family and having to go straight from, you know, the airport to him saying, you do this on your own. You know, my husband saying, you do this on your own. You need to go talk to your family. Mm -hmm. And so sitting down in the living room with not just my dad and brother, but the whole family. You know, this is a family business. My mom is a part of it. My brother's (laughs) wife's a part of it. You know, my sister had worked there on and off. And so it's the whole family sitting there and me walking into, wow, I really screwed up you know this is this is bad and family and and and, an employer yeah combination i mean you know it's it's bad enough when you do it to your family it's bad enough when you do do it to your employer at work but then the combination was just Hmm. yeah the most shame i've ever felt in my life by far and so much disappointment in myself you know and uh and so that was when I decided to try and start seeking out a place for treatment mm-hmm. and started not really worth getting into kind of the options I, I went around with. But um, that's when I started looking 
But in the meantime, I kind of used that I'm looking and I'm going to try and get help as an excuse to kind of keep doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I Because I had so much shame that I needed to drink then more than ever. It felt yeah. like, you know, I, you know, I thought the, the little bit of guilt or anxiety was bad before. This was a oh, yeah. whole this other is, level yeah, of com- completely different. I cannot get rid of this unless I yeah. basically just drink it away. Yeah. And, and so it didn't really help my, I, I do think I went a short period of time that month without drinking, trying to prove it to them and to myself how much it mattered to mm-hmm. me. But there was at least two, if not three other instances that same month. Mm-hmm. And those turned into actually drinking at the workplace, two of them. And my brother finding me, um, finding out that I was drinking one mm-hmm. time I was in my office. I had an office there and, um, he came in and I was basically, you know, passed out on my desk and, mm-hmm. and he had to call my husband to pick me up and try and keep it under wraps. So to not, to not cause a scene, you know, at the workplace with everyone else that was there kind of, and, and once again, even, at, even to that point, still trying, I mean, I think to protect the company and everyone else, but also still trying to protect me to a certain extent. Right, I don't want right. everyone to see her like this. I know he made an excuse for Sarah wasn't feeling well right. and you know, she's sick and that's why Carson came together. And my guess is they probably knew somewhat was, what was going on, but regardless, his, his intention behind it was, was still there. Well, it was to, still to protect and, to he, protect, yeah. and of course, I mean, there's part of that to protect you, even though he's probably beginning to become frustrated or resentful at yes. this point. Yeah. Um, he's still wired into the, some of the dynamics of that relationship. Yep. Um, until, you know, until he, he couldn't do it. Anymore. Right. Until I pushed or yeah. until I guess until I pushed too far, yeah. you know, um, after the one time we had a good talk and then, and then it was, it was another time of a family thing we were doing where I drank at that. And this is all, you know, in a few week period, mm-hmm. it was the work and then, uh, doing a family girls day with the, my nieces doing cookies that I ended up drinking and at that. And, and then the last time when I drank at work and that was the week before when I had already agreed to go into treatment. And so right, it was kind of right. my, this is my last hurrah and I can't drink at home because <sighs> my husband will know. So I can probably hide it better at work. And so, you know, so I drank at work a second time and, and that I think for my brother was kind of what pushed him over the, maybe pushed me off the pedestal in his eyes a little bit, I guess. Cause I was not only, cause I was not only going against, you know, my parents wishes at this time I'm going against his, I'm doing, I'm bringing, this situation and this mess into the workplace yes. that means a lot to them that, you know, that they've spent so much time, you know, all dedicated their life to, yes. you know, building. Yeah. And it, it became very personal at that point. I think yeah. it wasn't, you know, we, him and I had had a good talk and he thought we had an understanding and then here I go and do it again. You know, then it was like, I think I would, ass- and I shouldn't assume, but kind of from what we've talked about, it probably felt like a personal attack on him a little bit. Yeah. You know, we had an agreement, you know, this happened one time and I supported, you know, I protected you and then I supported you in getting help, but now you do it again. Right. And it's just, right. yeah. Well, and these agreements go back to when you were very young. I mean, this, these didn't, I mean, they were built up over years and decades, actually. Yes. But they go back, they started when you were very young, you know, oh, yeah. the, the dynamic between you and your brother. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and and when the confidence was actually when it was broken, 
um, that that role changed for him. It did. Yep. Yeah. It it yeah. it changed, and and he didn't, and, and not not by his fault at all. Definitely he didn't not. really understand what the problem was. No. And of course, no. you didn't. And I didn't either. either. No, yeah. Right. None of us. And I think that's why it was such. My mom will talk about it sometimes still, and. It was just a very hard time because no one understood what was going on, and, and including me more than anyone. Mm-hmm. And it was so, again, I had been a people pleaser my whole life. I had done the things mm-hmm. I should be doing, you know, yeah. almost my entire life up to this point. Yeah. So all of a sudden I'm doing this, and it just threw everyone off, kind of like a, who are you? And it felt that way to me, too, but it just was really one of the first times of my life that I you know, it was really disappointing everyone and myself yeah. over and over and over instead of a one-time thing. And, yeah. and so, and then going into, so that all happened in December of 2016 and then January 2017, right after New Year's was when I went into, into residential treatment. And, and when I was in there, I, had made the decision and started doing some work and processing about how the dynamics of the family business had mm-hmm. possibly been a, a big part of my anxiety and mm-hmm. my kind of internal struggle of, I want to do this, but I want to do it for them and I don't sure. want it to do it for me yeah. and just kind of getting older and realizing that. So this internal struggle was part of, you know, the, the underlying issue a little. And I, had already kind of decided and made up my mind and talking there with processing groups and my therapist that I was going to probably be done working at the family business. It was probably for my best interest and theirs. And then finding out about a week later from my husband that my brother had packed up my office and I was, you know, they had made a decision. I was done, done. Yeah. Which was very hurtful at the time, which, and I completely understand now they had to protect the company and, And I think they knew that it wasn't the best fit for me anymore either. I mean, we had spent about a year talking, kind of going over back and forth. My dad, mm-hmm. my brother, and I, is this the right place? And they and they did try and be very supportive of, if you ever want to do something else, you can. But, you know, now is the time because now right. we're moving into this next phase. Of the, but you somehow so. convinced yourself that you could. I convinced myself that it's what I wanted yes. to do because yeah. I got this rewarding feeling of, I'm doing this for them. My dad can trust me. My brother every single day is yeah. so, uh, you know, complimentary of my work and us working together and how sure. he just can't, couldn't imagine, you know, having to share, you know, the company and these uh, responsibilities with anyone but me. Right. My dad, you know, not being able to trust anyone but me to yeah. run, to do, take over the books and the no, accounting. Nobody, and, you know. nobody, nobody in the system saw the enmeshment. No, no, no not no, at all. No it just, it seemed as, it just really seemed like, it seemed healthy. It seemed like we just love and support each other. And, you know, we, we all have each other's backs, right. you know, until it became the issue of, well, if I want to leave then that, even if they're saying they understand yes, that, that means I don't have their back anymore. That means I'm going to put them in a hard situation because they've made it clear that, I am the right person for this role. You know, right. they, I'm the person they trust. I'm the person that, you know, that needs to be, to be here, to be doing this. Yeah. And that was, that was much more of an internal struggle than I knew. Cause I didn't realize how much I didn't want to be there until I wasn't and started pursuing my own interests. That so. I, that the concept of not knowing 
that part of the root of your anxiety um, and listening to this story again, <clears throat> you know, in, in this moment, it really ex- explains and, and, and put spotlights the importance of um, differentiating so much. Oh, yes. <laughs> because it's like I, I didn't even know. I mean, it's like you don't know you're in the middle of a storm. No. Because you, you have, have never been separated from it. It's all you've known. Yes. And in and, and your identity, which wasn't, which was, well... I, let's say your identity was really woven into the family and the family business and how everything ran it for was. so long mm-hmm. that anything outside of that, you, there, there wasn't the possibility for it. And no, so I had no confidence there, in, there was in, no the, room. in the outside. Right, yeah. 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 There, there was no room, and you, and you hadn't differentiated when you were younger, so you didn't know that you could do this. Nope, yeah. I didn't know at yeah. all until I basically forced my way into it yeah. by everything that happened. Yeah. And I, I looking back, I don't know if I ever would have left if things hadn't happened the way they did. I can't say one way or the other. No. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm hoping that eventually I would have, you know, woke up a little bit and gone, I can do something else and they'll be okay and I'll be okay. But this really was, in a way, just it forced me out of a situation I didn't want to be in. <laughs> <laughs> Without well, even knowing, the, the, when maybe I know, knew the, what the, I was doing, but okay. But here's I'll the beautiful <laughs> part of that, right? If you you know you get to totally transcend the victim narrative right now, is that you actually did all this? It's just you didn't know you were doing it. Yeah. Your alcohol um, yeah. abuse was a symptom, and dependence yeah. was a system of not of 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 dealing with the of, of not dealing with the enmeshment of the system. Exactly. Yeah. And so you know you forced yourself out of it, and that includes the the enmeshment you had into the story um you know that you had with your your husband as well i mean this yes. what this yeah. didn't happen just with the business no that yeah, yeah. that's it, it extends definitely into yeah. uh my personal and romantic relationship with my husband yeah. uh the enmeshment that we had and the roles that we had from the time we first started dating that had stuck that were also starting to become an issue internally mm-hmm. without me really realizing it and also then being Another underlying issue of, I guess it was something that between the, my career and my relationship, at that point in my life, I was starting to feel that I wasn't being authentic anymore or that, mm-hmm. or starting to question, I guess, is this really what I want to do? Is this really the person I want to be in this relationship? You know, is, I started questioning my roles, I guess, you know. Yeah, your identity. Without, without even, I mean, I didn't question them maybe to the point of really realizing that I was mm-hmm. questioning them, but obviously somewhere I was, and I think that's where the anxiety started building, was that it was just a confusing time of I've never had, I've never questioned this stuff. Right. You know, I, I have never rocked the boat. I, I'm, I've always just stayed on the, you know, I'm doing... What needs to be done for the people <laughs> around me, and I'm making them happy, and yes. in turn, I'm benefiting because yes. then I'm happy because they're happy. Yes, and, and when they're happy, I'm happy. Exactly. And then when and I'm happy, life, they're happy. Life is just wonderful. And everything is perfect. <laughs> it is all just a perfect life yeah. until it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Okay. So after this uh, experience, um, the family and, and the changes that took place, um, and with the business, then you're b- back home. Um, you and your your husband are, are trying to 
piece this together. And, right. And some of the dynamics at home have, have changed, too, because yes. of all this. Yeah, definitely. We talked, you know, spent a lot of time about how it affected my relationship with my family and, you know, with the family in the workplace. But obviously a large part of this is also that uh, I had been married for not even a year at the point when I decided to go into residential treatment. We got married in February of 2016 and had been together for six years mm-hmm. before we got married. And yeah, we've been together for a while. So we've been together for a long time. And, <clears throat> and then everything just gets completely thrown off. You know, I go into treatment and he definitely tried to be as supportive as possible while I was in there, would come and do family nights and came to meet with the therapist and myself while we were there to do some couples work. And but I could already tell things started shifting pretty much right when I got home. I mm-hmm. didn't realize it in the house. I was, when I was in residential, I, I remember having just a lot of fear around what if he leaves me? Mm-hmm. That was my kind of a, I was feeling so broken and still trying to find myself and put the pieces together mm-hmm. of how every, every, you know, the last six months, yeah, <laughs> like where did these last six, seven months come from? You know, it just, it kind of, when it hit, it hit hard and fast. And, you know, I, I had a relationship with alcohol for a long time, but that, that piece of it really, it hit when it did hit it, it, it went quickly, you know, and well, it became unhealthy. It became unhealthy the, quickly. Yeah, it was. Different. You yeah. bonded with it in a much different way, even right. though there, your early relationship with it, there was the shame there, right? There I was, mean, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and I'm sure that that you know played a big part in kind of the beginning of all that. But then I went a lot of years where you know I drank with my family, and you know, and it was all of a sudden it wasn't a shame based thing anymore, mm-hmm. and. You know, anyway, so, and I, you know, drank with my husband, as I said. So getting out of the house, I still was under the impression that I was on the nice with him to a certain extent. You know, I had really thrown a loop in our first year of marriage mm-hmm. and he was, saw a different side of me that, you know, I saw a different side of me too, you know, something that, and he was still trying to come to terms and understand more of the fact that, you know, the alcohol was a symptom, you know, that I was trying to cover something up and what was the deeper meaning. I think he told me a few times it was still, it was hard for him to not take it personally, you know, because here he is flying down to Texas on a whim and doing these things to, to support me and try and help me. And I just keep doing it anyways, you know, like, but the, the (laughs) interesting part about that and, and knowing, you know, Knowing the rest of the way the rest of the story goes, yeah. is that the conversation uh, that you and and um, your ex had on the phone the night before you you know drank yourself into that stupor yes. the yeah. next day yes um, yeah. was about kids right and you th- this this topic I know and you you and I have talked about this numerous times yes. that but it keeps coming back around is that this this part of you. I mean, you had made an agreement to to not do that in your relationship, you know, yes. to not go to that place. That, yep. that, but there's some part of you that goes back to it and wants to keep ex- re-examining it because you, it, it wasn't authentic for you not 
to be talking about this, not to be able right. to have it be part of the conversation and to actually be part of the possibilities for what your life could be. Right, exactly. And and that's, I think, what threw him off so much was here we spent all these years together and we're basically in agreement that we weren't going to have kids. Mm-hmm. And then as that part of me, just like with the work thing, when I realized maybe this isn't actually mm-hmm. what I want to do, it was mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. Maybe I actually do want to have kids. And it was a piece that I couldn't, I didn't want to hide anymore once I decided and started having the feelings of, I do think I want to explore the idea of having a child and hoping that, you know, since, I mean, we had kind of gone back and forth on it. It wasn't that either of us were a hundred percent set in stone, but it was definitely more leaning towards not. Mm -hmm. And he just, did not take those conversations well when I started deciding that, yes, this is something that feels authentic to me. Mm-hmm. So I need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like I can't keep this in. We, I need to have mm-hmm. some feedback from you. And it was continually just shutting it down um, because he wasn't ready to talk about it. And then that started the, as I started drinking and stuff, then that started a year and a half of the excuse of, well, we're obviously not in a good place to be talking about, you know, he wasn't, we weren't talking about it anyways. He was already. There's a good reason not to keep talking about it. Yeah. He was already not really willing to. Not realizing that actually it's, I don't want to say it's, whether it's directly or indirectly part of the, the, the core problem, but it's, it's attached to it because you didn't have the ability again to explore what is your truth right. in this relationship. Right. And you these know, are all rega- the things bubbling up in me else. that I'm trying to get yeah. out that I'm, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not being satisfied by, you know, being able to live my truth. And I, it just started feeling so important to me to at least be able to talk with him yeah. and have the, possibility that we could potentially have kids one day and you know after getting shut down a lot and then when the issues with alcohol started happening it was a lot easier for him to shut it down because now all of a sudden he had a real reason to shut it down you're not in a healthy place our relationship's not in a healthy place why the hell would we be talking about having kids right now and point point well made you know but but it also Part of those things prior led to some of that, um, you know, my unhealthy coping mechanisms and stuff. So, um, so yeah, getting, getting out of residential treatment, it was the first time I really realized what a strain we had on our relationship because in residential, I was, I felt a bit in a bubble, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm here, I'm protected and, and I'm doing the right yeah. thing, you yeah, know, right. I'm here, so I'm getting healthy. And as long as I'm getting fixed, when I get out, our relationship will be fixed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, the, uh, just perfect. All right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. that the problems are all gone now. Yeah. That's, right. I yeah. mean, that's, I went that... to treatment for 30 days. I'm not drinking. Right. So everything is supposed to be perfect right. now. And I did have a bit of that vision and I realized it was kind of that, it was clouded and getting home was a kind of a rude awakening that that was, yeah. <laughs> you know, reality hit. That is not the case. You guys have some issues, both personal that you haven't dealt with yet. <laughs> you maybe just sat in residential for 30 days, but I had a lot more digging to do and, and he did too. And 
Yeah, so reality hit pretty hard. Well, and it also brought out the scapegoat dynamic in the relationship. Yes. How easy yes. it was for you to take on that role of, you know, I mean, which you were kind of used to. I mean, that's what people pleasers do that, that mm-hmm. they, they often can become, well, you know, I, I am the, I'm the source of the problems, right? And, right. and, and it's easy for the family to do that. And, and yep. it's easy for the husband to do that. And, and say, you know, if you would just do these things and you, you would just be better, then everything would be okay. Why can't it be like it was? Back you know, then, yeah. yes. Why yes. couldn't Version it be? Version four, you know, four point yes. two or three point one or whatever. Right. It was, yeah. Why he, can't we go? He's back looking to that? back. I know, and we because we've talked about this. Why could? Why do things have to be different now? All of a sudden, you know, maybe I'm healthy. I'm in a healthier spot. I'm working on myself. But he just kept telling me, and then I know that you know a lot about this because him and I met with you mm-hmm. for counseling um, mm-hmm. regarding this being one of the issues. Was he? He just kept saying, "You're just different." Um, it wasn't necessarily a bash or a compliment. Right, it was right. just something that he couldn't wrap his head around. And to be honest, I couldn't either. All I knew was that I was. I felt better. I was starting to feel better mm-hmm. about myself. I okay. was starting to feel like a bit more authentic. As far as now, I'm. You know, the family business is kind of behind me. I'm still dealing with some of the shame from that, but I'm trying to make some amends, and I'm trying to, you know, find something that's going to make me happier in work. And and so it was hard for me to understand why he wasn't just thrilled with this right. new and improved version right. of me. So that put a strain at a time when I thought things were going to just be all better. Okay. And I, I mean, long story short, I basically stopped being the scapegoat, I chose over time, mm-hmm. and this is months, this isn't, you know, right after residential, yeah. but this is months of continuing to do, you know, group counseling and, or, you know, private counseling group sessions mm-hmm. and um, within the structure of outpatient programs and aftercares. And it was months of trying to figure out how do I honor this new part of myself <laughs> while still not hurting him or mm-hmm. not not being the person he needs me or wants me to be. Right, right. And so we struggled with that for for about a year and a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, back and forth, ups and downs of pretty much the time I got out of treatment up until April of this year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a year and a few months. Uh, different counseling sessions and um, lots of heart-to-hearts and one-on-ones and just it was a struggle for me to basically stand up for myself and say this is who I'm comfortable with now and this is who I I know I authentically Mm -hmm. am and need to be and that's someone who will be here to listen to you will be here Mm -hmm. to support you and love you but I may not show it in the way that I used to. I'm, and I kind of talked about this on the group podcast last week. You yes. Know, yeah, you I, yeah. you know, I might not tell you everything you want to hear anymore or right. need, or feel that you need to hear, you know, when you're venting to me about something, I may be more realistic with my answer or approach to it mm-hmm. and not as accommodating as I used to be. Um, <laughs> because I felt like that was more authentic to me. And I felt like that's, now what I needed to do that would be a healthier way for me to live my life. And I was hoping would be a healthier way for our relationship to build 
but of course it's still a huge huge dynamic and role shift in our relationship mm-hmm. he was used to you know at this point you know almost eight years of me being the one that always wanted to you know make it better fix everything you're unhappy how am I going to make you happy you know you're in a bad mood let me fix it you know that doesn't mean I was an angel all the time we definitely had our arguments and I, I wasn't, you weren't well I mean I, I kind of was okay, <laughs> no it definitely wasn't we had our you know disagreements where I wasn't always incredibly pleasant either but more times than not I kept that that role right. that I had all along from childhood of I want to be the peacemaker. I want you to be mm-hmm. happy. If you're happy, then I benefit that you're happy because I made you happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of a sudden, as much as I wanted him to be happy, I realized, I guess for the first time, it wasn't up to me anymore to do that. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard for him, and it was also really hard for me. I I felt like I was kind of abandoning you know, him in a way of, you know something he needed and I I, yeah. I just couldn't give anymore and that's kind of what was ended up being the beginning of the end of our relationship isn't this um, though isn't this a little bit more like the idea and I mean I, I know I mean in a way there is truth in the idea of abandonment um, but it's also equally um, realistic to use terms like um, I was actually being more authentic to myself. I was actually right. embracing what my truth. Right, exactly. And that was, <clears throat> and after a Which long time... Which seems like abandonment from the other side, because right. who is this person now? Exactly. You, why yes. aren't you the person that fits into my story that I had about you before? Yes. And, you know, and just we can click off those things. I feel this way, and then you do this. And then, yeah. <laughs> we had the system down <laughs> we, so perfectly. We had an agreement, right? <laughs> yes, Didn't we yes, have an agreement did. somewhere along the way yeah. we agreed? And I this. thought it was working for both of us, you know. And again, it was working yeah. till it didn't. <laughs> so Because um, the actual problem was this. Yes. You know, exactly. And, and that wasn't in any way his fault or my fault. I, I mean, that wasn't a role that he forced me into by any means. That's the role I, wa- you I knew. had it's my what, whole it's life. It's what you knew up to this and point. And so right. when we started that, it, it worked for us for a long time mm-hmm. in some ways. And, and in ways that it didn't, but I was able to push those down enough. Sure. And I think he was too. So, so basically... Yeah, we just, we could not, we decided to end the relationship uh, April, now we're in August, and it was over a year of just trying to get him, I think, trying to get us back to what we had been, and me wrapping my head around and accepting the fact that Mm-hmm. that wasn't going to happen, you know, that I wasn't willing to do that. I wasn't okay. willing to go back to how things were or how I was. Not that because they were so horrible, but just because that wasn't who I was authentically yeah. 
decided to be, you know, or well, it was, was it was partly you know? the source of your anxiety, if if yes. not a big part of it, right? And it's something that had never been addressed or even identified up until this point in your life. Exactly. I mean, I think you know, I I I think about this, and even though it brings a smile to my face when I think about it, you know, because you know, uh, you don't have to go into too much detail, but you know, let the listeners know that what the job that you ended up doing before yeah, your relationship not, yeah. ended, because yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the the decision about not having kids was yeah what w- was defined already yes and you and you knew that you wanted to be that was not true for you anymore right yeah so, so you took a job yep so I took a job so out of out of treatment when I decided first to get finally go out there for the first time in eleven years do finally <laughs> for the first time wow I'm I'm gonna get my own job it's you know family business it's behind mm-hmm. me but I. As I started looking, I still had no, I still didn't know really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I was definitely still working on finding that, um, you know, what made me me. And I kind of felt that as long as I wasn't in the family business, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It was just needing to be outside the family business and then I would be independent enough that I'm sure I would love the job, you know. And so I took a job in accounting, um, accounting services. Mm-hmm. That's what I had been working you know, on in our family business toward mm-hmm. the last couple of years and starting to take over for my dad. So it was a role I was very comfortable in. And I know it also made my husband at the time happy mm-hmm. because it was something that that he understood. You know, he's he's a really a very smart guy, incredible work, hard work, you know, very mm-hmm. extremely hard worker in his in his career and his schooling and everything. And so for him to see me going into something like that, I think made him kind of proud, like, sure. and that meant a lot to me yeah. at the time because, you know, here I just gotten out of almost ruining our relationship and I didn't want to just find something that, you know, I made really crappy money or, you know, right. that, that all kind of weighed on me as I need to really, <sighs> kind of make up for what what I did <laughs> and I felt like that was a good start was yeah. getting a job somewhere that he kind of you know approved of or understood could relate to uh, the work and you know enjoyed talking to me about and, and so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that didn't work out <laughs> <laughs> Uh, long story short, it, it but you, was. You the repeated same, a pattern. I repeat you, exactly. You repeated a, a, Not a worth getting into the whole thing. I repeated the same pattern, and so all of a sudden it clicks. Huh? Maybe it wasn't just the family business. Maybe <laughs> it was also what I was doing. You know. Um, right. So yeah, a lot of a lot of learning curves. I'm curious. Yeah. Did you ever? I'm curious. At any point, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. Actually, did you ever? think about what you wanted to do in life no at any point no i mean i did when i or, or because this you there was this sort of this path already laid out to you right at so when such i was a in young college, developmental age yeah because i know. did college for two and a half years before i started working at the family business and then just ended up staying there mm-hmm. that i i did go back and forth on you know as a lot of people do my first couple of years of college mm-hmm. I, you know psychology ele- elementary education fashion you know uh, i was kind of all across the spectrum and i think because i didn't have a defined path i ended up just easing and going in kind of with open arms to the family business uh, you know uh, yes. 
I have nothing else that is just hitting me as this is my passion and this is what I really need to do or want to do. So I just kind of just took that on as this will be enough. You know, this will this will work and it will be comfortable and stable and it will just be okay. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't horrible. It's was a lot of years that, you know, I, I appreciated yeah. working there yeah. and I, I thrived there and learned so much, so much. And so I would never, I definitely don't regret my time there. But once it was time to move on, I should have moved on and, you know, not let it go on so long, I guess. And, yeah. and then same with this next career move. So after repeating some of similar patterns and with the accounting job, because in some ways it was a lateral move for you. It was. Yeah. It was. And not in some ways actually. I'll just it, say in I was most just gonna ways. say it was it was completely a lateral yeah. move, yeah. yeah. Without me realizing that. I thought I was really <laughs> going out there, you know? <laughs> so so after repeating some patterns and kind of putting myself back in the same story, uh, I went out and decided for the first time to really think what do I want to do what do I like and just it was the scariest thing it was incredibly intimidating just having that freedom of you can decide what you want to do and that's just okay um yeah yeah you can actually <laughs> decide what you want to do yeah, when you grow I up actually, that, yeah. that's exactly how it felt like mm-hmm. what do you want to be when you grow up Sarah right. I had this conversation with my parents while I was job searching mm-hmm. you know and we threw around ideas. Well, I kind of like this. I kind of like that. You mm-hmm. know, it was it was almost felt like just starting from scratch. Like I was back in childhood, just you know, mm-hmm. what are your strengths? What are your goals? And I I ended up deciding that I really wanted to work with kids, which was interesting because for a long time of my life, as I said, I didn't think I even wanted to have kids. And I love my nieces and nephews. I adore them. I have six of them, but. Other than that, I didn't really think I liked kids. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I like them. I love them because, you know, they're family. But sure. other people's kids, no way. But for some reason, after that whole, you know, spark of wanting to be a mother, mm-hmm. you know, uh, build up in me over the couple of years prior to that, all of a sudden, something about working with kids was sounding better. And my parents, mm-hmm. you know, could see that too. My husband at the time couldn't, you know, that was something he was surprised mm-hmm. I think a little that I would want to work with kids because mm-hmm. again, that wasn't who I was to him mm-hmm. and that's not who I had presented myself to be, mm-hmm. but I did decide to try and get into something working with kids and I got a job at a daycare center, a brand new one that was opening as a teacher and I've now been there since last November. So it's mm. been however many months that is, eight, nine months, 10 10 months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I've been there for, yeah, almost 10 months and I absolutely love it. It's just been, I just never knew that you could really love a job. I kind of thought that was a false thing, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just work, right? It's you work. Really yeah. It, you yeah. may tolerate it. You, there, yeah. you may even have days, which I did have at, mm-hmm. at the family company. I had days where I really, today was a great day. Mm-hmm. I got really, you know, excited and passionate about yeah. like what we're working on and what we're working towards. But it wasn't always a daily thing. It was still the mundane, like, oh, got to get up, go to work, you know, type feel. And I kind of just assumed that's just how it was to work. And again, this is still somewhat new, but it's not that new anymore. And I still get excited every day that I go there. And we have 
infants three months up to school age, and I've worked with all of the different age groups, more than any of them infants. I got a promotion this about two months ago to their client services associate, which is basically I get to tie back in some of the business stuff that I the parts uh-huh. that I did like about yep. business because yep. <laughs> yep. I do thrive off of you know being a part of the bigger picture in a company to a point after doing that for a long sure. time. So joining the administrative team here, I get to do all that, but I still get to be in the classroom with the kids, with the kids yeah. every single day. And so I just am having a stressful time. I go in for a few minutes, get hugs from some toddlers, have them climbing <laughs> on me like I'm a jungle gym, and my whole day is made. Life just, is perfect yeah, all this Yeah, time. after this, I'm going to a birthday party for uh, one of the babies who just turned one, That's and her parents cool. invited me. I mean, it's just... So my relationship with the kids and the parents and just just with myself, just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's been the biggest transformation that I could have ever imagined. Just, I, yeah, it's it's awesome. I'm getting excited just talking about it. Yeah, I, love I can it. tell. Yeah, yeah I, I know. know. Yeah. I know. I love what I do now, and it's it's been great. And I know it was hard for, for it took a bit of a toll on my relationship, my marriage at the time, too, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden I screwed up my family business, which... He was very proud of me doing, you know, I had gotten ownership, I had worked all this time, and then I screwed that up, and then I screw up my next job that, you know, was in accounting, and I, mm-hmm. you know, didn't get into that story, but I screwed up that job, you know, and mm-hmm. and now I'm just going to go and start making even less money and, you know, working with kids. Like, mm-hmm. I think he was just totally thrown off, like, what are you doing, you know, and and he's... What a great question. Yeah. What what are what you doing? What am I right. doing? Yeah, yeah. And what I was doing, I'm, I'm I guess. listening to my heart. Exactly. Yeah. What I was doing was finally listening mm. and finally doing what I needed to do for me. Uh, and that has now been an ongoing thing mm. since about last October where I have increasingly been doing things for mm. myself. That goes into the work. That goes into my relationships, it goes into my self-care time, it goes into my recovery, um, it goes into a, a number of things, and it has increasingly just perpetuated since last October, I guess, just making those changes and doing things for me for yeah. once. Yeah. Well, let's let's go into that a little bit. So um, what do you do? What, what, what do you do? How do, how do you... How do you um, take care of yourself? What's, what does your self-care look like now? So a huge part of my self-care is, is literally just going to work mm-hmm. um, and then realizing in the middle of the day if I'm starting to get a little stressed out because we are incredibly busy right now. We're a little understaffed and I have a lot on my plate mm-hmm. being on the admin team and just some self-care might be going in the middle of the day and just going to just hold a baby for a minute <laughs> or just <laughs> hang out in the toddler room or step outside and get a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Um, I never used to do that. It was always, if what if they need me and I can't show weakness or show that I need time away, you know, that's, right. that's going to show. Right, self-care is a sign of weakness. Right, right. definitely no, was. I'm, I'm oh. sorry. I know I'm being, that's t- such a terrible it thing is. to say. But, I so believed it, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't ever, yeah. don't let anyone see you sweat. Don't. Yeah. And, I mean, that shows such a sign of weakness. And to do that in the workplace, yeah. no way I was not going to do that. But now I, I will do that, and I will do it gladly and say, I need 10 minutes, and 
you know what the cool thing is? Is no one thinks I'm weak for it. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was the story I told right? myself. Right, right. All those yes. old stories that are yeah. totally irrational. My coworkers, my boss. Around. Good. You do need a break. Yeah. You know, you go do that. Take an extra 10 minutes. You know, just a lot of support. Expressing just, grief, sadness, and loss is a sign of weakness. One of the greatest fallacies of all time. Yeah, you know? exactly. And the same yep. thing. Same that, thing. And, and, and take doing self-care. Yep. Yeah, when you have the, the thought is, well, do that on your own time. Well, of course, yes. But, you know, what's five or ten minutes in, yeah. in the middle of a day, right. you know, to yeah. lower stress or anxiety? Exactly. And and for my job, whether it be me or anyone that works there, mm-hmm. that's a huge factor because those kids can feel, you know, the stress and tension. So for you to go out and take ten minutes for yourself and need someone to cover you for that time mm-hmm. in order for you to come back in and have your demeanor be... Uh, more at ease with the kids around yeah. and them feel that I mean it's better for everyone so sure. so that's one thing I do um, I I advocate for myself when I need time and I take <laughs> it when I need it and I listen to myself when I need it mm-hmm. I don't let myself I, I shouldn't say never but I rarely let myself feel overstressed or overworked mm-hmm. um, just about a month ago I stopped taking anxiety meds for the first time and it was kind of a risky time because it was when I started this new position and things mm-hmm. have been crazy busy and stressful at work. And yet I just feel great. I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I don't let it overstress me. And I think that's because I listen to myself. And if I start feeling that I, I listen to what do I need to do to, mm-hmm. to get, get back down a little bit. And then with my off time when I'm not working, one of my biggest parts of self care really is doing recovery based stuff. I do two different aftercares mm-hmm. a week on Wednesday and Thursday nights, I rarely miss them. And even when I don't want to go, I usually go and I just get a lot out of it. And they're very different the way they're both run. And I really get something really cool from both of them. One, I feel like I might be kind of helping a little bit more. There's people that come in that are struggling a little bit harder. Uh Like they're coming in kind of a one-time thing. And then the other group, I've just gained all these amazing friendships and connections with, you Mm -hmm. know, through Wasatch. It's just... So for me, that is self-care, being able to come and sit back and hear people talk and being able to talk myself and mm-hmm. just kind of release and process whatever is going on. And sometimes it's really good stuff. And I just want to get that out, too. You know, sure. it's not always bad stuff. And but that's really that's a lot of self-care for me. And then um, I do refuge recovery, which uh, is <laughs> yep, I do every yeah, no. every Saturday no, at 6 p.m. <laughs> yep. Refuge recovery is just a beautiful a beautiful program. Yes, really I've been is. doing it, I think, since it's either February or March. And yeah. it is, I, I don't miss it. I mean, I just, I love it. And it's a huge part of my self-care. Again, you have that. I have that community and connection right. and group uh, behind it. But then with the added meditation that I was a little worried about doing it first because I had never, you know, uh-huh. I tried meditation just so infrequently and had never really taken to it. And it still can be very challenging for me to get in the right zone, but it's Mm -hmm. getting easier. And it's cool to see as I've practiced it and been doing Mm -hmm. it, how much I can, I can ground myself by going to these, um, refuge recovery meetings, doing the group meditation, and then being able to talk with, you know, people who have similar, you know, stories and backgrounds and that we can, you know, be there and understand each other. And, uh, that connection is incredibly powerful. So those are a few things I do weekly. They're all recovery based. And then if I'm, I mean, we have a book club we do through. So there's a lot of things, I guess, that I've, that I've made 
important a priority in my life sure. as far as and and that's not just to not drink i feel for myself of at least not. i yeah, have not so yeah i have not that. been tempted i mean i haven't had a I'm not saying I, I never will, but currently for a long time now, I haven't had a craving or a desire mm-hmm. uh, to use alcohol. So it's really not to stay sober from alcohol at this point, um, more than it is just to maintain this life where I'm being able to be mindful um, about my life and mm-hmm. my experiences and myself and being authentic to myself mm-hmm. and appreciating. I mean, we, we've talked so much in Refuge, you know, about appreciating the impermanence of life. And that Mm -hmm. used to be a really scary thought to me. And now just being able to, I just have such a different perspective, I guess on, on life and being able to appreciate the good and the bad Mm -hmm. where before I only, I always anticipated the good, you know, like what's the next good thing? What's the next vacation I can plan? What's the next party I can plan? And always that anticipation waiting for the next good thing to happen. And then when it was over, I always felt let down and depressed because it either wasn't as good as I wanted it to be or had let, you know, believed it would be or, Or I, or it was over all of a sudden and nothing was fun anymore. So, um, yeah. And the power of non-attachment appreciation It is amazing. And it's taken months now to really, to really dive deep into it. But it's, it's kind of changed my life the last few months, changed my perspective a lot in the day to day, Uh like things that having a hard day, guess what? This will pass having a good day great enjoy it while it lasts but remember that this also you right. know won't last and being able to just appreciate everything for what it is it's that it took some work and it still takes work and i'm still learning how to do that but it's it's helpful and um yeah i just the self-care has become such a priority for me and since you know my husband and i have decided to separate it's i have to say it's been a lot easier to do all that uh i was feeling a bit selfish <laughs> mm-hmm. for a while in our relationship feeling like I know I need to take this time and do the self-care, you know, do this stuff in recovery or just take time to myself. But it was hard doing that when I hadn't done that in the Mm -hmm. past. It felt, I think, to both of us a little bit. I mean, I know for me for sure that I was being selfish and taking time away from him and I. Right. Uh, and, And that is a tricky thing, kind of finding that balance where you're doing something for yourself, but you're you're in a relationship. So when you're new to learning how to do self-care for one of the first times, finding that balance between. Well, because self-care is, I mean, this is the the basis of it, right? It's not about pleasing anyone else. Exactly. And that just obviously. There's no no people pleasing payoff in self-care. Right. It's supposed to be for us. Yep, exactly. And so for me that it was hard for me because I wasn't pleasing them, which in turn they weren't being pleased. So then I felt bad that I was letting them down. (laughs) But, you know, we've moved past that. (laughs) It's been been a work in progress for a long time, but I'm getting there. And now, now being... Being single now the last few months, I have been able to focus on myself, and I think it's where I need needed to be, and I think it's going to be healthier for both of us. Yeah, now in the okay. long run. So. You, you may have just answered this question, but where where do you uh, where do you where's your Zen zone? Where do you connect to that? I mean, is this is this in the, some of these same places? Some of the same places. Put, yeah. You, a Zen zone for sure is refuge for me. It okay. wasn't at first. It was intimidating a little at first. Just again, mm-hmm. you know, something new mm-hmm. I was unfamiliar with, but it's become my Zen zone. And the outdoors for me always have been. Uh, we've been summer right now doing more hiking mm-hmm. and um, some camping. You know, went with some friends uh, through recovery a few weeks ago, and we're going again next weekend. 
and just and that's always the mountains have always been a uh, yeah, uh, nature. Yes. Yeah. That's nature for pop, me has yeah. been so powerful and so good. yeah. And music for me is a huge, huge thing. I've gone to some concerts this summer and I've allowed myself to really, to really feel the moment of being there and the music more, mm-hmm. you know, like I went to a concert a couple nights ago and, you know, when I used to drink, it was all just about the being there and having fun. It wasn't as much about the music, you know. Uh-huh. It was the the party of it. And the other night, it's this, you know, band that I have loved since junior high. And they were playing at Red Butte, which is an outdoor amphitheater here. Mm-hmm. And it's right on the mountain. It's just beautiful. And the first song came on, and I just got instant chills. You know, it's just... <laughs> and I sat in that and just let it. And I danced without, you know being drunk and I didn't Drink. care what anyone yeah, right. thought and Dance I just like nobody was watching and I did that and I felt so I just felt happy and then there were songs that they sang that I felt sad I was there with my ex-husband and because we'd had tickets before we had decided to separate mm-hmm. and it was a little bittersweet you know um, there are some of the songs that reminded me of our mm-hmm. time together and probably him too and so but yeah just but just being again okay with that impermanence that I it was okay to feel sad during some songs and feel incredibly joyful during other songs mm-hmm. and you know just I like how yeah. you brought the impermanence into that yeah. just because it's also that really it allows us to or at least allows me to experience being in the moment when I'm when I'm not attached yes right? non attached appreciation yeah. it makes a huge difference yeah. it's it sounds kind of depressing. I remember feeling like the whole concept of impermanence and non-attached appreciation uh-huh. kind of sounded just like a downer and kind yeah. of depressing. But, but really, when you start to live it, it just it just makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. Well, let, let's uh, just we'll, we got just a couple more to to yeah. hit for today. What what about uh, how do you how do you connect? Um, and maybe you just answered this too. Um, or what are your thoughts about faith, belief, God, and the universe? You know, and, yeah. and the meaning to life. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, just that question. No big deal. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Let's just throw that in real yeah, quick. Right, yeah. uh, no, I mean, with, without getting into it too deep, I I grew up Lutheran, so I I had this. <laughs> and you had some fire and brimstone I, upbringing. I did. Yes. Yeah. And it, it kind of it perpetuated because of the dominant religion here of me kind of, and I talked about this kind of on the podcast last week too, yeah. just wanting to be like, no, I am Lutheran. I am Christian. I am you know, not LDS. <laughs> and, and so really playing a part and, and that stuck strong with me through all the way through high school. And that's when I really started kind of questioning and, and I've now gotten to the point of, of connecting with, I guess I consider myself agnostic. I used to say mm-hmm. atheist, mm-hmm. but I feel like in a way for me, at least saying I am, you know, believe in God or saying I'm atheist are almost the same thing mm-hmm. for me personally, at least, you know, cause they're just both too extreme <clears throat> and I just don't, I personally don't know either. I don't have a huge strong mm-hmm. sway. I've stopped putting energy into, you know, cause it, it was hard for me yeah. once I kind of start questioning believing in God mm-hmm. out of high school. It was a hard transition for me. Um, and so now I'm kind of to the point where I just I I'm I'm content with not knowing. So my connection with all, all things life are yeah, is mystery. back to nature and you know doing some meditation 
taking time to do self-care. That's uh, yoga. I love doing yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, now sometimes, you know, meditation, which I've been trying to add into my schedule more. Mm-hmm. Those are the times I feel very connected to the universe. The times where I'm either in nature or just really sitting yeah. with myself. Yeah. Um, and, and beyond that, I, I don't put a lot of thought into it anymore. As far as God and religion, it's, it's kind of, I've allowed it to finally become a non-entity to me because I realized it wasn't worth, to me, the yes. the anxiety or questioning well, of what is yeah, real, right. you know? Because to practice non, non-attachment appreciation, you must let go of all concepts exactly, of God. Exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah, mean, and, and so that was a lot easier for me to take on now that I, they kind of, they go together now, so it's... Yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at, I guess, with faith and everything. I, I appreciate and understand people people's needs um, or wants for religion in their life, and I mm-hmm. think it can be a good thing for certain people, and it's a sense of community um, at times. But I have found my my place and my community and and elsewhere, and and so yeah, religion isn't for me, but but connecting with with nature uh that probably makes me feel the most humbled cool Mm -hmm. all right so it takes us to the question of music Ah, music. so i I always love this question too you know so (laughs) if if there if there was a a song or two or you know what would be on that playlist of your life that that uh, either whether it's uh, something that's a celebration of your life or just something that you know has has meaning to you, what, what's a song or two that that do <sighs> that, that bring are important and, and why? Yeah, yeah, no, that is that is a good question that I'm not prepared for <laughs> <laughs> as I'm sitting and talking about music. Um, so there's this. Song, so the concert, and this is maybe because it's fresh in my mind. Sure. Uh, when we went to the concert the other night, that was Death Cab for Cutie, mm-hmm. who I've loved forever, but mostly I like their old stuff, the stuff from, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. and they did play some of those songs. And the last song they played um, when they came back out for the encore was, which is their album name, Translanticism. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you say it. Um, okay. And the whole album is kind of, it's about travel, and some of it's about like long-distance relationships and painful this and that. But the last song they sang came back out. is It's a, it's the same, the t- same title as the album. And I just had this moment while listening to it that I, something struck me, and I guess maybe it was a bit of that, just like kind of living in the moment. And appreciating it for what it was. Mm-hmm. I was standing there with my ex-husband and thinking this might be the last concert we're at together. This might be the last time, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're you know, it's, it's not that we won't say semi-connected, but it just, it felt kind of like some type of a closure or something. And the song just keeps singing over and over at the end, um, I need you so much closer. And... Mm-hmm. It just felt interesting to me, those lyrics. You know, I've heard that song a billion times, and I've always loved it, but just in that moment, it felt so... um, I don't know, just so fitting, I guess, because I felt like... It just, I don't know, it felt like the beginning of an end of, like, you know, to of our even 
I think I hope we can maintain a friendship and everything. But we、mm-hmm. had a really good night together. We had some really good talks, and and we both had moments. I guess I I did during that song and him during another of some tears that、mm-hmm. were shed just kind of at the the、sure. realization that you know. We're not going to be doing this forever, just, and、yeah. and you know the the eight years that we have been doing this is is now kind of coming to an end,、right. um, and so that yeah I guess that doesn't go along with necessarily my whole life, but it did just strike me since I was just at that concert and I had such no, a I had such an emotion to it, you know, yeah,、um, because that, in, in a way too for our, you know. A, For a, a, something that represents tr- transitions and transformations in our life. Yeah, you know? yeah, and how and, interesting and, it is that you can、things. hear it、yeah. forever. And yeah, it felt like, in a way, closure. Like, okay, this is the beginning of the next phase for both of us. So it、sure. felt kind of, it felt kind of good, and it was just bittersweet. I guess is the best way to describe it.、Um, felt like the beginning of something new, but the end of that era. And、uh, it, music just, it can just trigger me up. A lot,、um, a lot of different emotions, <laughs> and you know, I know we've we've talked about that before, but、um, yeah,、uh, there are a couple the Beatles I grew up with, and I will always have a a soft spot for a few songs just because they're from my childhood and they they remind me of a time. A simpler time. No, I know exactly what. Where I, but I still love them. You know,、yes. they've taken on new meanings. Yes.、Um, like something and across the universe and strawberry fields. I mean, I could name a, I could、yeah. name so many right now.、Yeah. But that, th- like, <laughs> they have a way to bring me back to that feeling of being a child and kind of the innocence that I felt when I listened to them as as a child, while still. Having that new meaning、yeah. that they've taken on to me as an adult, and you know, kind of、um, maybe harder emotions I've been through, and、um, yeah, yeah, I think I'm that prepared with music thoughts. Kind of,、okay. I'm kind of, at, I'm kind of at a loss right now, but yeah, those are those are the first couple things that come to mind. Okay, perfect. So yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much.、Um, all right. Well, I I'm really grateful we took this time today. This was a great. Experience a, a great、uh, story of your、uh, wholeheartedness and bozoness together. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> It really, they go together so they well. They do. They do. They do. Oh no! Thank you for having me. It's it's I've been very grateful to have you know you as a part of my life、uh, for the last year and a half, which is just kind of crazy, and to to be doing these experiences.、Um, Just help me continue to learn and grow, and that's kind of what I'm all about right now. So, well, and that's so what this podcast、great. is all about: is,、totally. is helping、yep. that and sharing these stories so other people can learn and grow too. Yeah, and I haven't done that. It was I was a little nervous、uh, putting myself out there, but <laughs> we talked vulnerability last week, so I figured you know it was a good prelude to doing my <laughs> to doing、hell? my one-on-one do podcast. Do this,、right. <laughs> exactly. So、right. it was it was great. So thank Thanks, you.、Sarah. Yeah. All right, we'll go out as I always do <laughs> with a little Joan Osborne. Have a good week. Next week, Corey Markovich will be here. Have a good week, guys.